two songs had the phrase hallelujah in it. Thank you, brother. You guys remember what hallelujah means? That's right. It's two words. It's Hebrew word hallel, which means praise, and then the shortened form of Yahweh. Yah, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. And um, so Elena, Elena, Nikki, and Jake. Don't forget about Jake. Thank you today for leading us in worship. They let you out of your cage, Jake. That's good. So... Today we are in Acts chapter 8, excuse me, John chapter 18. I'm going to go to Acts, that's why it's in my head. Um, let's just ask God to guide us. Father, guide us today in your word. And we hope, Lord, that from your word, as your spirit teaches us, convicts us, encourages us, all the things that he does for us, Father, that we will continue in a heart of hallelujah, a heart of praise toward you, our great God. So guide us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Today and next week, really the next three weeks, Easter included, but today and next week, today we're in John 18. Next week we're John 19. It's really one story. It is the, the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And it's a story. It's a narrative. So, you know, our chapters and verses kind of break things off, and we're going to use those, but they're kind of an artificial break. They were not original. We're going to use them, though, for this week. Today is 18. But it's kind of like a in on a cliffhanger. And then next week we'll come back and do 19 with continuing the trial before Pilate and his crucifixion. So open your Bibles to John 18. I want to remind you of the theme of the Gospel of John. I haven't read this to you in a while. But John in chapter 20, verse 30, mentions that Jesus did many signs. But those that were written down in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the theme of the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So life in his name. And today we're going to look at what seems to be a very dark period in Jesus' life and in the life of the disciples. That the disciples have this idea, here's the Messiah. He's going to bring in the reign of the kingdom of God on earth and get rid of these Romans. And it is all shattered in chapters 18 and 19. So it's a dark day for the disciples, what appears to be a dark day for Jesus. But let's remember also from John chapter 1 in the introduction to John when he wrote. This is what he wrote in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. And who is the light? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what we read today is not a defeat. The Gospel of John is presenting the cross as a victory. So let's look at that today. The first section is John 18, 1 through 11, and I've titled this, Jesus Controls His Arrest. I want to walk through all of 18. And kind of give some little comments here and there, but really it's just a story today. It's not a heavy application day, except for when we take communion, we realize what our Savior did for us. That's the major application today. So let's read John 18.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, of, the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And that's Gethsemane. John doesn't mention the name. Now Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, which would be Romans, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, that would be the Jewish, probably, temple guard, 
went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, what do you seek? Just stop there for a moment. Don't miss this. John leaves out Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. He, he doesn't include it, just like he didn't include the Last Supper. He included a foot washing, but the, all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had the Last Supper. All the other Gospels had Jesus praying in the garden, I, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. John leaves that out. So we'll talk a little bit maybe why in a bit. But I want you to see here how John presents to us a different side of what happened this night in Jesus' life. Because here comes the guards. You can imagine from the other Gospels, Jesus has gotten up from his prayer because he was down on his face when he was praying to his father. He's gone to his disciples, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, and says, done sleeping, get up. The betrayer is at hand. And so the Roman soldiers and the Jewish guards are coming to Jesus. What does John say here? Instead of backing up, it says Jesus stepped forward and said, whom do you seek? You can see right away, now Jesus is, he is taking control of the situation. And John presents a beautiful truth here. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So John wants to understand what's going to happen next happened to Judas too. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, just use your sanctified imagination today. Try, try and see this from, you were there, you were fly on the wall or on a tree, however you want to put it, and you're seeing the emotion of the people, you're seeing the intensity, the tension in the air, the betrayal of Judas in a moment, the denial of Peter. So try and get the emotion of this day. The guards come with confidence. They have the torches and the weapons, and they want to know, where's Jesus? But Jesus preempts that and comes forward and says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Boom! They hit the ground. Now... And they have to be bewildered. They're starting to get back up, and Jesus said, so tell me, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's what he spoke in chapter 17 in his prayer to his father. We looked at that last week. So, some great stuff here. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Now, we've seen this before in the Gospel of John. Many times. Where our English says, I am he. The Greek says, I am. Doesn't have the pronoun he. So, who you seek today? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they all fall down. So, so this is Jesus, in some way, flashing his glory as Yahweh. We've seen it throughout the Gospel of John, this phrase, I am. Our English translations put in he, because the question is, who do you seek? 
I'm seeking Jesus of Nazareth. So he's identifying himself as the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. But the translate that the Greek doesn't put he in there. So this is typical of John with double entendre. That, that there's two meanings to a lot of John's phrases. And, and it's kind of like, I don't want to... Um, remember when you were kids? So, so if you're my generation, you go to the movies. And in the middle of the movie was an intermission. But just before the intermission was subliminal messages that they would put up there. They'd show a popcorn. They would show a soda or my favorite bonbons. And you didn't really know it, but it was just one frame of the film, pop up and be gone. So your mind caught it, maybe your, 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 so, so much your, your memory and your eyes. And then intermission happens, what do you do? I'm going to get some bonbons. I, for some reason, I'm craving bonbons all of a sudden. So, so that subliminal message, this is, folks, this was not subliminal. It's like Jesus, you know, to borrow something from DC Comics, you know, Jesus flashed the big S on his chest or the big Yahweh on his chest. And they have no clue what happens to them. Jesus is controlling his arrest so that they would not arrest his disciples. The Jews want Jesus crucified, the Jewish leadership does, as a blasphemer. The Romans are concerned of an insurrection. They don't need another king out there claiming to be the king with a bunch of followers. So if they're going to come arrest the insurrectionists, what are they going to do? They're going to arrest his followers. And so Jesus is controlling the situation. It's me you want. Let these guys go. The other Gospels tell us at that moment, all the apostles ran. Jesus says in John 10 that he would lay down his life for his sheep. In this moment, he is functioning as the good shepherd. He would lay down his life for his sheep, and he would protect them from the wolves, John 10 tells us. It's exactly what he's doing here. So even though it doesn't seem like it, Jesus is controlling his own destiny. The circumstances would say different, but he's controlling his own destiny. When our circumstances suggest God is not in control of our lives, when our circumstances suggest that maybe the pain in my life or the, the, the circumstances, the fear that is coming up, the anxiety coming up in me, maybe God doesn't have a good plan. Maybe he's not in control today. Can we take this story and say, just as Jesus appears to be in an uncontrollable circumstance, but yet he is in control, can we too, in the midst of our anxiety and fear and pain, say, God, I trust you. I can't see it, but you're working a plan. Can we do that? Easy or hard? Very hard. What the disciples do? They bolted. So when you feel like bolting in that situation, remember, God, I don't see it right now, but what scriptures tell me is you're working a plan right now. And often, God's plan to bring us to maturity, to grow to Christlikeness, involves pain. Would you agree with me that we seldom grow in maturity when times are easy. It usually takes a little fire. 
So let's keep that truth there. Just like Jesus on that day appears he is being overwhelmed by the enemy, he's actually in control. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Why did he go after a servant? I'm wondering. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to throw Peter under the bus too much. He didn't seem to go for a Roman guard. But and then why the ear? One of the commentaries would suggest that this servant had a helmet on, and as Peter brings the sword down on the helmet, it slides off and takes off the ear. So Peter means business. What did Peter tell Jesus previous in the evening? I will go to prison with you. I will die for you today. And he's making good on it. Making good on it. Kind of messing with Jesus' plan. So what does Jesus say? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now that's a reference to what did, what did Jesus pray three times in the other Gospels? Is there any other way? Take this cup from me. And at some point, with resolute determination, he stands up and said, not my will, but yours be done. And he heads to meet the crowds that are coming for him. This verse, though, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? As he says that to Peter, confirms all this is planned. I want to show you how it isn't just circumstantial. It isn't, you know, here, here's what sometimes people think. That God, God said, I'm going to send my son. Then he looks ahead in time looks ahead in time, and sees that, oh, if I send my son, my perfect righteous son, they're not going to like him. They're going to beat him up and kill him. Well, can, can I use that? I'll use that to save humanity. See, sometimes we want to make man's plan the supreme and God the reactor to man's plan. You follow me? And I don't want to minimize we make plans in this life and we have responsibility for our choices. But let's look what Peter says in the book of Acts. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, so this is Peter's speech at Pentecost where 3,000 people get saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's talking to eyewitnesses. This Jesus, look at this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. A few verses later, Peter tells them to repent for crucifying Jesus. But whose plan was it? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If that's, not, if that's not specific enough for you, Acts 4, verse 27. Peter and John have been arrested for healing a man in the temple and the upheaval that happened in the temple because of that healing. And now they've taken Peter and John aside to the Sanhedrin and told them, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. You know the story. They come back to the church and the church is praying. And this is, this is right out of the middle of their prayer. This is the church praying. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, remember this is a prayer to God, whom you anointed, both Herod, who's Herod? He's the king of the Jews this time. He's a Roman puppet. Nonetheless, he's, he's half Jewish, and he's appointed as the king of Israel. You've, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate. Who's Pontius Pilate? Governor. The Roman governor. So we have a Jewish king and a Roman governor. 
along with the Gentiles, which would be the soldiers, and the people of Israel. So you've brought together Herod, Pontius Pilate, the soldiers, and the people of Israel. Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So this is an incredibly strong passage on the head side of the coin. If, if you're visiting today, you won't know this illustration. I haven't got time. But as the coin illustrates the God side of the coin, the head, the tail side of the coin, our responsibility, God has put a plan together of which Jesus is playing out. When he tells Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put that sword away, Peter. This is my destiny. And trust me, Peter, you don't know it now, but I'm in control. One commentator, a man named Gary Burge, putting these two concepts together of, of Jesus controlling his destiny and God planning this, says this, if God is the author of this passion play, Jesus is the protagonist, but he's also the producer and the director. And so keep that in mind. While Jesus is wrongfully accused, beaten, and murdered, this is the plan of God to save you and me from our sins. Jump down to verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and we're going to see here Peter denies knowing Jesus. Now we get to the denial. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door, so, that, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept, the door, who, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. What did Jesus predict? When Peter said, I'll die with you tonight, what was Jesus' specific prediction? Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Here's denial number one. Try and get into Peter's mind. Peter, who, who like me, is an external processor. Do you know what that means? He talks before he thinks. Um, a lot of you are external processors. Okay? Um, we, have, we have to think. We have to talk out loud. So Peter's always, always talking. And, and gets in hot water. He loves his Lord. He's ready to die for his Lord. And when Jesus says, tonight is my night, the Last Supper, when he washed the feet, he said, tonight is my night. I will die tonight. Or in the morning I'll die. All the disciples said, we won't abandon. He, he said, and you're all going to abandon me. No, we won't. We won't do that. Never. And Peter takes it a step further. I'll die with you tonight. I think when he said it, he meant it. But now what happens when he's rebuked by Jesus for swinging the sword? Something shifts in his psyche. And the first chance he has to stand up for his Savior, he denies him. Look at 19 to 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So 
We're going to learn from Luke in a moment. Peter's and Jesus are in eyeshot of each other. Is Peter hearing the conversation? As the high priest says, tell me about your disciples. Because we want them too. Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. You know what I said. When he said these things, one of the, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about what the about the wrong. But if you, excuse me, what, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here's what is exposed here. This is an illegal trial. The, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish writings of the time. So, so the, the, the law of Moses, okay, we, have, we, have, we have 39 books of the Old Testament. That's called the law and the prophets. Sometimes the law of the prophets and the writings. And then, and then the Jewish scribes and the Jewish um, 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 Pharisees and Sadducees, all, all, these, all these leaders started making a whole lot more rules about how life is to be lived in Israel. And that's eventually written down what's called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, it talks about what is appropriate for a trial. A trial can't take place at night. You have to have an impartial jury. Were they impartial? You have to have witnesses for and against the accused. Did they have any witnesses for? No. And so you have, you have a high priest making claims that Jesus says, show me where this happened. And he gets slapped for it. So Jesus is pointing out the, egal, the illegality of this. Verse 25. Back to Simon Peter. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the disciples of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So here's a guy. I, I saw you, Peter. You cut off his ear. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, John just kind of comes to a quick conclusion on this. But listen, listen to what both Matthew and Mark both say these words. At this point, the third person saying, you are one of his disciples. It's Matthew and Mark both say, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. By the way, swear is not using profanity here. He invoked a curse upon himself and said, I swear to God, I don't know him. And if I'm lying, I'll be damned. That's what he's doing here. He's trying to convince the crowd he doesn't know him. And he goes so far to invoke a curse upon himself to get out of being known as one of his disciples. Now we're going to jump to Luke 22. It'll be on the screen. Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly? Have you ever had uncontrollable bawling? Peter, at this point, in one evening, goes from I will die with you and attempted to start the fight with his sword in the garden. Jesus rebukes him, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Something happened in his psyche to where three times he said, I don't know that guy. I don't know him. What are you talking about? I don't know him. I swear to God, I don't know this man. Quit asking me. And then Jesus looks at him. They connect eyes. Can you feel the pain in Peter? Can you feel the pain in Jesus? Let's, let's not take away Jesus' emotion here. I don't do it often. But I like to show a little movie clip now of the passion of the Christ of this scene. Because they do an amazing job showing the emotion in Peter. So I hope you in the back you can see it. If you know the passion of the Christ is in Aramaic. So it's subtitled. Unless you know Aramaic, of course. So go ahead and play that, please. <laughs>
John, the Gospel of John, is the week after Easter, we will look at John 21, where three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And restores Peter back to his place of leadership of the apostles. It's going to be a great sermon. Let's look at King Jesus before Governor Pilate. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now that's called hypocrisy. They have an illegal trial of someone they want put to death. But they'll keep the food laws and not being too close to the, to the a Gentile so it disqualifies them eating the Passover. It's amazing how humans, we, we all do this. We will say, I'll keep this virtue and command, but I'll ignore that one and justify it in some way. So this is glaring. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, they don't give an accusation. They're, they're stonewalling. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, by the way, remember this, when it says Jews and John, it's always referring to the Jewish leadership, not to the whole population. The Jews said to him, it is not, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Israel, in the law of Moses, had, oh, seven, eight different offenses that earn the death penalty for the offender. But the Romans, when they came in to rule Israel, took away the Israelites' right to carry out the death penalty. It has to go through the Roman government. So 
If Israel still had the authority to put to death, how would they do it? What did Moses, the law of Moses, require when you put someone to death? Stoning them. So they would pick up stones and throw them. And the whole congregation would do it, not necessarily the leadership. It was a community thing. Pretty, pretty, pretty difficult for us today to think through. But since they couldn't do it, we want you to do it, Pilate. Jesus is not a citizen of Rome. So how do you kill insurrectionists? How do you kill criminals in Rome? You crucify them. So this was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now Jesus proclaims his kingship to Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about you, to you about me? Pilate answered, Now look here, use that imagination again. Look at frustration on Pilate. Pilate did not like being where he was. He did, there's a lot of history that shows cruel things he did to the Jews. I mean, I mean true cruelty. He now has to the, the Jewish leaders bring him someone to put him on trial, and they won't even come into his prayer. To, they won't even come into his courtroom. They want to stay outside so they're not defiled, which forces Pilate to go out and, and succumb to their desires. I'm sure that irritated them. Now, Jesus is in there. Are you the king? Is that your own thoughts, or did someone say that to you? So now, now put into Pilate this frustration. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So here we have the chief priests want him put to death. They brought no accusation that deserved death. So Pilate's trying to get it out of Jesus. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, I am a king. Oh, no, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to me. We now have a conflict between two kingdoms. We have Pilate, who is the appointed ruler of the Palestine area, appointed by Caesar himself. And Pilate's trying to find out, are you claiming to be a king? Because if you're claiming to be a king, we have a small problem. There's only one king in the, in the world, and it's Caesar in Rome. And Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but not of this world. So we have a clash of two kingdoms. And th this, this is um, a clash of two kingdoms that you and I have to live in. Are you part of the kingdom of God? A little more enthusiasm. If you've come to a place where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now part of the kingdom of God, which is not part of the temporal kingdoms we live in. So we belong to this earthly kingdom also. We are citizens of this country we are in, in this earth. And there's always conflicts between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom, always conflicts. 
This goes all the way back. In fact, um, St. Augustine, or, or Augustine, however you want to say it, um, he was in Rome when the, the heathen came in and sacked Rome. A after hundreds of years of superiority, the, the, the heathen came in at, from the shh, Germans. Don't, don't, don't be offended, Germans. Out of Germany and sacked Rome. And all of a sudden now a lot of the populations, it's those Christians' fault. If we wouldn't have turned to Christianity, this wouldn't have happened. But we've ticked off the gods. So Augustine had to write a treatise on the two kingdoms. And he wrote what's his most famous book probably called The City of God. He said, how do you as a follower of Jesus live in both the city of heaven, city of God, and the city of man? We're, we're citizens of both. Which one takes priority? Okay, I'm, I'm going to start, start this whole sermon over if you don't talk back to me. <laughs> Which one takes priority? The kingdom of heaven takes priority. The city of God takes priority. But we must live here as good citizens. That's a whole other sermon. So these worldviews are colliding now between Jesus and Pilate. They become, they become a test case for these two worldviews, especially over the nature of truth. So I'm going to start back in verse 37 again. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you, you say that I am the king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? So put a little sarcasm in there. What is truth? Again, this is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the earth. The city of, of God and the city of man. The nature of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said back in John 14. The truth. So the city of God has absolute truth. The city of man, that truth is shifting. It's a shifting shadow. Today we would call it relativism. Relativism is the idea that truth is determined by your society, determined by the majority, determined by those in power, all different ways. But it's relative. Because what, if, if truth is determined by those in power, what happens when someone overtakes them? What happens to truth? It changes from these people's perspective to these. And you know, there's a common phrase today, and I don't, I don't want to pick on it too much, but, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. That's, that's an expression of relativism. And, um, and there's some areas that, that we truly are. Life is relative. There's some areas. you know, that I'd call them preferences and, 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 and likes and dislikes. But there's certain aspects of our world that is the truth. And there's a great book out there. I, I quote this often by Francis Beckworth. He's a philosopher, a Christian philosopher. And it's a book on relativism. It's relativism, the subtitle, both feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> There's certain aspects that Jesus says there is the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? It was a conflict then, it's a conflict today. So the last section today, and we'll leave it on a cliffhanger, we have the ultimate irony. The release of the Son of the Father. So look on the screen. The release of the Son of the Father. Pilate has already said, I don't find any fault in him. 
In 19, he's going to come out and tell the Jewish leadership, I find no fault in this man. None. Nothing deserving of death. And we'll see next week why, in fact, he still puts him to death. So I think Pilate's thinking, hey, I have this tradition. Every year at this time, Passover, I release a criminal just to show how gracious I am. So I'll get the biggest, ugliest, meanest one and present him. And maybe with the, with the chances that they won't want that person released, they'll let Jesus go because he doesn't deserve to be killed. So let's look at that, the last few verses of 18. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You can imagine maybe standing there. That's how the artists show it. One side Jesus, one side Barabbas. And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now the ESV says Barabbas was a robber. The NIV says that Barabbas was a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. The word can mean either one. And most likely, most, most of the commentators I read prefer the insurrection. It's not simply a robber, but someone who's causing an insurrection, someone who's causing a, wants to cause a revolution to overthrow Rome. And what does Barabbas mean? The name Barabbas, Bar, when you put the word Bar in front of something, it means son of. Son of Abba. What is Abba? Father. So, do you want me to release the son of the father? Or release the king of the Jews? The irony here is unbelievable. You have a man who's accused of insurrection and most likely guilty of it, Barabbas. You have a man that the Romans see as a potential insurrectionist who's the true son of the father. Israel, which one do you want? Kill him and let him go. In the other Gospels at this point, and this will set us up for next week, they'll say, what do you want me to do with him then? Crucify him, crucify him. But he's done nothing wrong. And here's what the Jewish leadership said. Let his blood be upon us and on our children. And they killed Jesus. Another double entendre. So with that, we leave the cliffhanger. As chapter 19 opens up, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That'll we'll wait for next week. Father, today as we've read through this story that you have given us, Help us throughout the whole day today, even the week, Lord, bring it back to our minds. Back to our minds of incredible love our Savior must have for us to endure this at the hands of men. And so much more as we'll see next week. For us, we thank you, Father, for this amazing plan. And um, oh Lord, as I, as I see Scripture, and I certainly know my own heart, um, I deserve none of it. But as Ephesians says, 
but with your great love, you've lavished it upon us, with the great love with which you loved us, and mercy and grace. Thank you for that, Father. As we now participate in communion, Lord, just overwhelm our hearts with that mercy that our thoughts, our actions deserve nothing good from you, but you love us so deeply anyways. So in Christ's name we praise you.